As we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We'll commence our reading here at verse 8. That's Matthew chapter 4, and starting at the 8th verse. Beloved, hear now once again the word of our God. And again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. And if you would, holding your place in Matthew 4, turn over to Luke 4. To Luke 4. Starting here at the fifth verse. Luke 4 and at verse 5. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and I, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Amen. And may the Lord bless to us these words this morning. This Lord's Day, we conclude our time in the wilderness with Christ. We spent now several Lord's Days considering the temptation We watched as Christ was taken from the Jordan, taken into a desolate place, taken among the wild beasts, and in a place where provision for life was so scarce. And on top of that, he was taken taken to be tempted. Here we see the man of sorrows going out to accomplish redemption. And now, for the better part of two months, we've been contemplating this combat between Christ and the devil. And this morning we come to its conclusion. This evening we come to to what is really the final final exchange between the two. But, But this morning we come to the last verbal exchange. The last words between these two parties. And beloved, as we think of this text, I think it's right for us as a word to pull ourselves back for a moment and remind ourselves what we have here. We have Christ accomplishing redemption. I think we can easily take that for granted, but we shouldn't as we come to this text. Here we have have the incarnate Son of God coming, but how does He come? How How does He carry Himself as He engages with the tempter? 
Well, strikingly, he comes, as the Word of God tells us, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is susceptible to pain. Susceptible to hunger. He comes not as Adam the first was in the garden, filled with strength and vigor. No, no, Christ. Christ, as he comes in his state of humiliation, comes in the weakened flesh of mankind. He took upon him not the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seed of Abraham. And why? Friend, that same writer, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, tells us thus. Because in all things it behooves him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. See, friend, when you and I look at this, at this battle in the desert, you and I are to be mindful that the Christ whom we see there has taken upon himself our likeness without sin. Well, as such is the union between Christ and his people, that he would take upon them, take upon him, take upon him their likeness, and even to the point of being tempted. We have then here a marvelous text, one that should fill us with thanksgiving, one that should make us humble before the God who has wrought such for us. But we come to this final exchange, and we do so, of course, in Matthew 4, in the 8th verse, where Christ responds to the third temptation as given to us in verses 8 and 9. In there, you'll notice that Christ gives the devil two things. First of all, he gives Satan a command, get thee hence, Satan. And then he quotes from sacred scripture, as he was wont to do. But I want you to notice here that this citation from Scripture is a decisive, it is a clear answer to the temptation that's gone before. We've seen that already in the previous two instances, that Christ is, is quoting Scripture aptly, and he's quoting Scripture in such a way as to cut off the ground for all temptation. But I also want you to notice here, as we look at this text, that in neither the command nor the quotation does Christ dispute with Satan over what has gone before. He doesn't fall to dispute Satan's claims, and he doesn't dispute the glory of the nations that Satan set before him, though he easily could have on both occasions. No, instead what he does is he simply quotes that text that so clearly avers his own love for God. He quotes here testifying that even if Satan could offer all that he offered, even if he could give him nations that were all glory and no dross, beloved, this text shows us that in the heart of Christ it would not matter. It is his love for God that is preeminent. So, Christian, as we think of this text, and as we think of Christ taking upon us, taking upon him our likeness, it's right for us to remember that union with Christ requires that we also take upon us his own likeness. Both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. 
whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Beloved, in this text you have a picture of what Christ's likeness is. And so you and I have a picture too of that end, that, that, that destination, if you like, of our sanctification. That the heart of Christ that we see in this text must in fact be what is found in you and in me if we are truly found in him. And so, beloved, the theme from, for this morning is quite simple. Taking from Christ's example and knowing that we are to be conformed into his likeness, this text teaches us that God's people cleave to him over the world. God's people cleave to him over the world. And I want, to, I want us to consider this briefly this, this morning by just considering the aversion that we find in Christ to this temptation, and also the adoration that Christ here cites. And so take first of all the aversion. That comes to us in the command, get thee hence, Satan. It's a personal reply from Christ. It's striking, isn't it, that up to this point, when Christ has replied, the body of his reply has been from sacred scripture. But this third and this final temptation, he doesn't simply go to scripture. He issues forth a command of his own. This is a command, as it were, that demonstrates Christ's own personal and heartfelt aversion to what Satan has suggested. Of course, when Christ cited scripture, he was citing that to which his heart was obviously inclined. But in this moment, this moment we find so very clearly that in spite of all of the glory that has been shown, in spite of the high and even the glistening promises that Satan has, has produced, Christ has a real aversion to what has been suggested. There's a sense, friend, here too, where this is quite personal. Up to this point, as Christ has cited these texts in response to temptations, Christ has really been responding to temptations, but here the Savior responds directly and personally to Satan. Get thee hence, Satan. He doesn't undercut the temptation itself, he undercuts the tempter. You see, in this moment you have an emphatic reply. If you like, the limit has at last been reached. He has suffered Satan thus far, but no more. This was the furthest that high tide could come. This was the limit. And what's striking is this, this text in Matthew gives to us that this is the last exchange. Luke, for different reasons, gives to us this same exchange, but as the second temptation. But in both cases, it is in reply to this temptation that you have these words. In other words, here Christ is not simply saying at the end of these three occasions of temptation that Satan must be finished. But it is in response to this particular temptation that Christ commands him to depart. Showing us here clearly that this is supposed to show us so emphatically, how averse Christ was to it all. And beloved, what was the temptation? If you remember what we said last time we were together, the temptation was for Christ, for a moment, to cast off God and to fall down at Satan's feet. In Christ's aversion, then, we have a picture that the casting off of God, even for a moment, is to be viscerally 
resisted. Casting off God even for a moment is to be viscerally resisted. There are two reasons for that, beloved, with regard to the people of God. The first reason, of course, is that they're identified as those who fear God. When first the gospel came to these lands, the Christians were known as Chaldees. The word there is is actually from two Latin words. It's from cultores deorum. The idea is that they are worshippers of God. That's their very identity. And so, beloved, it is throughout the scriptures. Cornelius is called a fear of God. The idea is the people of God are those who worship him. They are his servants by identity. And so in a moment like this, whenever the people of God are tempted to cast off God, he's really urging the people there to cast off the very thing that designates them. And so, rightly, the heart should respond to such a suggestion, saying, if I'm not this, if I'm not a worshiper of God, even for this moment, then what am I? To cast off the worship of God, even for a moment, is to cast off your identity, if you are indeed among the people of God. But there's another reason, beloved, that you can't miss. This aversion is to come, not only because there's an intellectual an intellectual reason uh, for avoiding it, but there is to be an inward disposition against it. I want you to notice how the Word of God describes the godly. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? Beloved, here you have a picture of grief that, that has ravaged, as it were, the man. His inmost being, his inmost being is touched with his hatred. And why is that? Well, positively, he says, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Therefore, I hate every false way. You see, beloved, that is the disposition of God's people. It must be. If they're to be conformed in the likeness of Christ, there must be this inward grief toward sin, toward casting off God even for a moment to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The apostle puts it this way, if any man love not the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema maranatha, forever a curse. Such is the apostle's disposition that his love toward God and towards the things of God cause him to be grieved, deeply grieved, by what he sees is in rebellion to the cause of Christ, to his word. And so, Christian, we have here a picture of the heart of God's people. Of course, in our text, we have it clearly and perfectly exhibited in Christ. But in the word of God, it's not unique to Christ. All of those who are being conformed into his likeness have that aversion to some degree towards sin. And that aversion should only be growing. You see, Christian, when you think about this text, you have a clear picture, don't you? A clear picture of our own generational failings. Sin has become so normalized that we do not grieve as we used to. When was the last time we had a a day of public fasting and prayer and humiliation over national sins? 
But beloved, when was the last time when was the last time that we grieved to the point of tears over the sins that we see around us? When was the last time that the emotions of our own heart were so stirred because of iniquity that we found ourselves genuinely mourning? We, we live in a generation, beloved, where this kind of response to sin is so seldom seen. But here in Christ, it's exhibited so brilliantly. And again, it's exhibited here to show us what it means to be conformed into his likeness. Well, what, what is it really to cast off God, just briefly? Obviously, obviously, casting off God in many ways relates to worship. That is, actually taking to oneself the worship of another deity. But, but of course, in the scriptures, it's so much broader than that, isn't it? According to the Apostle in Romans 1, there were those who worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. That's idolatry. Anyone who finds themselves enslaved to the creature more than the creator has in that sense cast off God. Has done the very thing that Christ is most averse to so clearly. Or put another way, in the scriptures, those who cast off God are those who count his worship and his service a weariness. God regards those, those who say, behold, what a weariness is it, as those who have really cast off the Lord. That too, beloved, is a casting off of God. And here we have in our text a clear picture that the godly must have a disposition, an earnest disposition against all forms of casting off the Lord. But secondly and finally, we have here a picture not only of aversion, but crucially we have a picture here of adoration. And that we find in the text that Christ cites. He says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, the text that we read before. But I want you to notice that as you're looking at Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, Christ supplies a word that's not found in Deuteronomy. Him only shalt thou serve. The word there is supplied by Christ. It's a necessary implication from the original text. But he supplies it here in an emphatic sense. Of course, Deuteronomy 6 requires that it's only the Lord that is the object of Israel's worship. But in this text, what we have here so very clearly is that Christ would emphasize this point in the face of such temptation. In this way, beloved, he thwarts Satan in two accounts. First of all, he thwarts the temptation in this way. Christ now is in the zenith of his affliction. We read of no other place in Scripture where Christ, at this juncture in his life, had faced the kind of affliction that he faces now. Up to this point, we know of no other time of adversity quite like this. Forty days without eating in the elements, and taken, genuinely handled by the devil physically. But at the zenith of Christ's affliction, this is the text that Christ cites to thwart the suggestion. He will still only serve God. Let all kinds of torment, let all kinds of pain come to him. His heart will only and always be directed to his Father. 
This is a clear answer and a decisive answer to Satan. But positively, friend, I want you to notice this. Christ is actually refusing what has gone before. I said to you already that that in this text you don't find Christ disputing the claims of Satan. You don't find Christ here even disputing the, the, the supposed glory of the nations that he's been shown. Instead, what you have in this text, strikingly, is that in the face of all of that, in the face of all of that, Christ is saying clearly, it doesn't matter. Even if Satan could give him the nations... Even if Satan could give him these glorious nations, it wouldn't matter. That's why this text, the older commentators are so helpful, I think, in this regard. That's why this text is so potent. Christ is saying clearly he has a heart that even if those things could be his in this way, he would refuse them all. The service to his God, to God, is greater still. And beloved, what you find here then is again a clear picture of the disposition of his people. God's people are disposed to prefer him to the world. God's people are disposed to prefer him to the world. Of course, this happens through the work of regeneration. The new birth alone gives them this new disposition. You remember how the Apostle puts it. He says, you were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. He says here, you were once, you were once averse to God. You were once enemies to him, estranged in the inmost parts of your being to him. But now you're reconciled. Omnipotent grace has come and it's arrested you. Of course, this is the very idea that Moses has in mind with the circumcision of the heart. The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. You see, beloved, when Moses speaks here of this internal circumcision, he's speaking here of men and women being conformed to Christ's likeness where from the very heart they prefer God over all things. Before all things, God is there in their affections. And note what Moses says, it must be the Lord God who does it. It must be God alone who does this work, to so orient you to the Lord that you'd be willing to part with all for Him. And you see, the godly know this by experience as well. We were saying from Psalm 35, how does the psalmist express this disposition? He says, all of my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee? His very frame, his very frame is oriented to the Lord. It's a graphic expression, but it's one that should grip us. This change that has been wrought in his heart is such that he trembles with delight because he is so taken with the Lord. And beloved, I quote this to you so often. I know I do. But Psalm 73, is that not not the heart cry of all of those who have this new birth? Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth I desire besides thee. That's what regeneration does, friend. That's what the new birth does. 
You know, Fred, as I think about the way folks talk about repentance these days, it's no wonder we're in the place that we are. Because so many talk about repentance as, as if you like, the person just by, by, his own, by his own willpower, avoiding the things that he wants to do and doing the things that he hates. That's repentance for, for most. That's what it means to be regenerate, that you finally have that willpower to do those things that you hate to do. And that's not at all the case, beloved. That is not at all the case. The, the pig, he, he will leave. He will leave. He will leave the pigsty. He'll leave the mud for a time. But he'll hate it. And he'll have to run back to cool his flesh in the mud once again. And so, beloved, that's how so many professing Christians are in our generation, isn't it? They take God as though he were, he were an onerous taskmaster, calling them to do things that they hate. And after a while, they need to run back into the world to cool the flesh. That's not the experience of the godly that I've just read to you. Beloved, the experience that you have here are people who are genuinely oriented to the things of God. They're made new creatures. They're not the pig that wants to wallow in the mire anymore. They're the lamb that is pleased to be beside the shepherd. That's the idea of the new birth. And you see, beloved, even in our text this morning, you have a picture of what that inward disposition is supposed to be. These ones have really come. No, not perfectly. Not in a consummated sense. But have sincerely and in their own degree come to see as Christ does that the world, the world, it would be better to lose it than to forsake God for a moment. You see, beloved, that's the picture that you have of our Savior here. The picture of one who delights, genuinely delights to do God's will. A picture, a picture, a perfect picture, yes, but a picture nonetheless. What is be the disposition of all of God's people? Friend, I think it's crucial that we think about this text carefully. Young people, you know, you know that as you leave your parents' house, you're going to go into a world that doesn't know Christ. You know that already. You know what it means for, for somebody to go off into the world. It means that they forsake everything that we're talking about this morning. The delight in service to God, the, the, the willingness to submit to his precepts, an aversion to sin. But I would remind you before, before you think any further on those things, remember this, that in this text we, have a, we are of a wonderful reminder that the people of God conforming to Christ's likeness are to consider the benefits of God greater than the things of this world. When you hear us crying out that, that you are to avoid worldliness and carnality, the cry there is not that you would avoid those things that are good in themselves. The cry is there that you would know by experience what I've just quoted from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none on earth I desire besides thee. 
So many in our generation are of a mind that the world is actually what holds all good things and God limits our enjoyment. But this text reminds us that there is more in God and that we are to light more in God than what sin could offer us in the world. This text also reminds us that we are to be a people who recoil at sin. Sin is something that is supposed to grieve us. And beloved, this is something we ought to be praying for more and more. I know it because we talk about it. But the shock value of the gross iniquities of the land are now lost on us. It's nothing to most of us to see some of the most heinous wickedness on our front step. We talk about it because it is so common. But we need to be praying that the Lord would make us so sensitive that we do, in fact, recoil. Not just when we see those great and those outrageous iniquities, but also whenever we see all temptation. And beloved, if we are being conformed to the likeness of Christ, that is a question for us. Do I find that growing in me or do I find that waning? Do I recoil more at sin this year than I did last? Am I grieved more at sin this year than I was, than I was last year? And the second question is, do you grieve sin for God's sake? That is, do you, do you grieve these temptations? Do you grieve iniquity and worldliness primarily because God is your delight? Friend, those are crucial questions because, again, in our text, we have a picture of what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. This is the pattern. And do we see this in ourselves? But as I close this morning, I want to close by taking your minds back to Hebrews 11. Because while we look at this text and we're mindful of our failings, there is comfort here. In Hebrews 11, you remember, as I've said to you already, that the pastor there is, is dealing with a congregation that, that is under incredible, under incredible duress. And he takes them to these examples, really to, to be models for them on, on how to be faithful under adversity. And so he goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham went out not knowing whether he went. He goes to all the patriarchs and he says, all confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. He says of Moses, Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He did so esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He goes on to say, what shall I more say for the time shall fail me of all of these others he could enlist as examples. And what is he doing? He's setting before us a picture of people who have delighted more in God than in the world, who have found more pleasures in God than in sin. Is that not staggering, friend? He goes to all of these ones and he says so very clearly that, that if you give me the world, I would still prefer God. But chapter 11 really shouldn't end where our, our text ends. Because that's not where the apostle leaves the argument. He takes you through this train, this great cloud of witnesses, and where does he end up? He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, 
And we know this lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Note what he says here. He cited Abraham, Noah. He cited Enoch and Abel. He cited all of these great ones on the earth. But where does he end, friend? He doesn't end with anyone but Christ. And he says, there you have the clearest picture of one who in spite of all the temptations that were hurled at him, preferred God to all. And why is that testimony given to us? Well, the apostle puts it this way. He says, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. But what's staggering about this is the idea here that if our head, if our head so endured, he is able to enable his members to do the same. That they too will come to know that there is greater pleasure in God than in the world. And so he says here clearly, do not be wearied or faint in your minds. Christ is not only your example, but here he is the fountain and the one who enables his people to stand even when the world is promised. And so Christian, as we look at this text, we have here a brilliant display of the righteousness of Christ. We have here the second Adam standing and preferring God to all things, showing us that in the inmost parts of his disposition, he was pleased to have God in him only. And beloved, this is to be your pattern and mine. May the Lord more and more conform us into his likeness in this way, this morning. Amen.